Hi, everybody. This is God's Side for the Sad Truth. Uh, the guest that I have with me today has been tough to pin down, but he's finally here. I'm so delighted to have him. Michael Schellenberger, how you doing, sir? Nice to finally be with you, God. Likewise. Okay, so let me just read for you some uh, prepared sort of bio. You've been an environmental activist for several decades, co-founder of the Breakthrough Institute and the California Peace Coalition, and founder of the Environmental Progress in 2008, Time Magazine, uh, named you as Hero of the Environment. You are the author of three books, at least that I'm aware of, two of which you were kind enough to send me signed copies of, San Francisco, Go Out There People and Get It, How Progressive Policies you know, Ruin Cities, and then Apocalypse Never, both of which I've yet to read. I've perused through them. I plan on reading them in my next vacation. Uh, does that come? And you also ran for governor of California in 2018 and 2021. Did I miss anything, Michael? That's 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 you got it. You got the big you got the big parts exactly right. <laughs> All right. So let's start with uh, some you know recent timely things that have happened. Have you been following? Uh, uh, the WEF meeting in Davos with our friends John Kerry and Al Gore, and would you like to comment on any of that stuff? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think World Economic Forum is really interesting. Uh, it's, of course, the sponsor of the Davos Summit, and uh, we published on Monday an article with a former Financial Times reporter named Isabella Kaminska, where we uh, reported for the first time on how secretive the World Economic Forum's own finances are. They're being managed by Al Gore, at least in part. They won't tell us much specifics about how the what they're putting their money into, even though it's obviously a direct conflict of interest with what they're doing, which is basically putting a platform of politicians to endorse what are often pretty terrible products including insect protein, solar panels made by Uyghur Muslims in concentration camps, uh, conflict minerals from Africa that use child labor. And they use people like Al Gore and, and heads of state. The German chancellor was there to promote these products. And really all the conspiracy theories, the so-called conspiracy theories which is that they want a great reset where we all have to use less energy and live a poorer life that we should use. We should eat insects rather than meat. And um, that, you know, that these, that all these uh, conspiracy theories, their so-called conspiracy theories we, we pointed out are actually correct. They're, they're actually originally from WEF and Davos along with this idea that you'll own nothing, have no privacy and be happy. So these, <laughs> These things were had been dismissed by spokespersons for WEF for years, but they all were, in fact, on the WEF website or originated from Davos. And we even uh, discovered that in several cases they had deleted them from their website, but they're not even very good at their jobs because they sometimes left the links up on Twitter. So I think it's so we kind of summed it up by saying because we were kind of like, is it a cult or is it a scam? And so we finally said Davos is a is a grift and a cult, but it's also a bid for global domination. That basically the kind of paranoid conspiracy theories around WEF all turned out to be true. And it's also the case that his father 
operated a factory in Nazi Germany, and he's certainly not responsible for his father. But even that particular kind of right wing conspiracy theory turned out to be correct. Well, you know, I, I'm glad you 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 set up the just uh, you know the dichotomy between is it a cult or is it a scam because it, it kind of you know segues nicely into the next question that I was going to ask you, which is I often wonder when people adopt a particular belief system, a particular position, whether they you know what is the reason for them to adopt that position? Uh, do they truly believe that position? when they put their head on the pillow, you know, and are, and are in the privacy of their thoughts. So for example, uh, you know, I often critique, you know, postmodernist philosophy, Jacques Derrida, Michel Foucault, Jacques Lacan, and I'm of the opinion, and I think there is some evidence to, to, to support my, my position, uh, that they actually knew that it's a bunch of nonsense, but they're riding the wave of fame, but, but in the deep recesses of their mind, they know that it's wrong. So when it comes to a lot of these kind of eco-activists, I mean, I guess there are three possible options. One, someone is misguided. Greta Thunberg and other people, you know, I want to save the earth. We're all going to die. But they, they don't have any nefarious, uh, you know, reasons for holding these positions. They might be just misguided. Then there are people, the policymakers, the Davos people, who genuinely might be philanthropic in their outlook. They truly believe that they can help you know they're superman and then there is the nefarious you know we're trying to take globe you know have global do uh, domination is there some evidence that supports why one of these three is more likely to be the operative mechanism for this whole climate hysteria i mean as a rule i don't think really anybody has bad intentions i mean even hitler wanted what was best for germany hitler didn't wake up in the morning and go i want to um make the world a worse place. You know, he had this vision that we would all say is like literally the worst vision you could have, genocidal, mass murderer, megalomania. But he, for him, his vision of the Lebensraum, the living space for Germans requiring the clearing of Jewish settlements in Poland and the rest of Europe, that was a positive vision. I think it's important to understand that for Hitler and the Nazis and many Germans. Similarly, environmentalists like Klaus Schwab and Al Gore and Greta Thunberg, they have in their mind a very specific picture of the world they want. I sometimes joke that it's basically Elizabethan England, but that is kind of what it is. It's sort of Renaissance fairs. It's sort of people. It's Ecotopia, a book I'm not sure if you know, but a, a famous book about from the 70s sort of describing the Western Pacific breaking off from the United States by uh, by the leaders of the rebel group getting nuclear weapons and putting them under US cities and then allowing the Western United States to become Ecotopia. And it was basically had moved back to manual labor, to renewables, to organics, which are labor intensive um, and really believing that those labor-intensive food and energy processes would, would uh, bring us together, make us happier, restore community, restore the Arcadia or the Eden that was lost. So I think they all have good intentions. Um, you know, um, so I'm not sure if that answered it or not. No, well, I don't but no, I get it. I get it. But I, I mean, I think maybe you're being too charitable because I, I can't imagine that 
in all instances, it's only driven by sort of altruistic, you know, existential altruism, because I think that there, there is a power grab to be had in, you know, saying, yeah. Hey, right. So, so that has yes. to be part of the equation. We we don't know what percentage of those folks are only doing it for a power grab, but it certainly can't be as, as, as strict of a statement, as you said, everybody's doing it for good intentions, but let me propose another possible mechanism. Uh, that might explain some of the positions taken by the the wealthy and the billionaires and the anointed ones to use the the term of Thomas Sowell. Yes. I think that many people suffer from I, I'm I'm proposing this theory to you and I'd love to hear what you think of it. So many people I think suffer from existential guilt. So I'm um, analogize it to say survival guilt when when a plane crashes and the person next to me dies whereas I don't why did I survive? What was special about me that I should survive where the poor chap next to me died? And then it's a very, very difficult psychological mechanism to overcome. And so therefore you experience survival uh, guilt. Well, I argue that actors, celebrities, billionaires suffer from a form of existential guilt because in the deep recesses of their mind, they know that they don't necessarily deserve all the accolades that they receive. They're not gods, they're not kings, they're not royals. But boy, I can fix that. I can address that existential guilt if I can justify why I am special because I truly am saving the world. As John Kerry reminded us yesterday, yes. no, we are a few people in this room. People don't realize that we are literally saving the world. It, I mean, it is so smug. It is so arrogant. It's so condescending that it really defies logic. And you don't have to be a fancy psychologist at a university to see it. So might it be the case that, again, not to get too psychoanalytical, that a lot of people believe in that stuff because then I'm justified to be wealthy and a billionaire and so on. Yeah, absolutely. What you said, everything. And I think the John Kerry clip which a lot i saw a lot of media reproducing a lot of people reproducing that um yeah he said the he said the quiet part out loud he also summarized what davos is that's what that is in other words one of the points i made in apocalypse never but also in a forbes column before that is when you keep getting caught flying a private jet to a climate conference maybe it wasn't an accident that you got caught so there's a it's not enough to be so this is interesting so because we sort of I think what we're talking about is the relationship between money power and religion or what we would call wokeism or just the radical left um, the apocalyptic left the regressive left and of course they're always one in the in reality we only by language do we sort of separate them if I say um, is it a cult or a grift? I'm already suggesting that a cult can't be a grift. And of course, I'm saying the opposite. I'm saying a cult. I'm saying that cults are grifts, actually. Like Jim Jones, who is someone I studied and wrote about for San Francisco, um, he was a scam artist and he was a cult leader. The cult was a kind of it. Now you kind of go, did he believe in it? Well, yes, he did. He did believe in it. He did believe in what he was saying. He believed he was a kind of God. The psychopathology for sure is um, now the guilt issue is super interesting. Um, Nietzsche, uh, I just went and reread Nietzsche over the summer to understand this question because I, I, I myself did not quite un understand it. And I was and what he argues is that 
that the guilt is a a kind of redirection of power of 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 elites of the rich and powerful that they they have this power to um initially to sort of punish and control others and to even kill them like their slaves and the weaker people and then when we when we arrive at a place where we're going to have that violence regulated through juridical systems, through courts and police, and we're not going to let each other just kill our slaves whenever we want, there's going to be some way to regulate that. So we kill them only in special circumstances. Um, he said that all that energy had to go somewhere and then we turned it back on ourselves. And then you sort of get religion where the priest is the one who's sort of, you know, I'm making my, I'm not having sex. I'm not eat I'm, I'm eating, you know, I'm living in a monastery, whatever. And that that sort of creates a sense of guilt. He also says it probably comes from early religions, which he hypothesized come from uh, ancestor cults. But I have to say, I think the guilt stuff is particularly Western because when I go to Japan and Korea, they are much, these are, and this has been written about quite a bit, I think, um, is that they're much more oriented towards shame uh, in a different sense in which we use guilt. I mean, it's so notable that the that the Al Gores of the world and the Greta Thunbergs, they're using guilt identically to the Judeo-Christian story, identically. Like there's almost like you're just swapping in, instead of sinning against God, we sinned against nature. It's just almost like it's just a complete substitution it's I almost think you can, I mean, so it's such a terrible reductive model, but it is almost like the hardware of, of Western consciousness. It had Judeo-Christianity for a long time as that fell away because it just couldn't withstand the conf confrontation with science. That what emerges in its place is this ecology and it just is the same, but it's not quite the same in Japan and, and South or South Korea is more Christian, but it's not quite the same in Japan. And, and it made me wonder if it really is, tapping into some deeper archetypal Western, you know, concepts that that wasn't that wasn't part of the Japanese story. Meaning that the Japanese environmental activists are not running the same software to justify their positions. Is that what you're saying? There is some of it. Like if you see the movies of Hayao Miyazaki, which is, I think, one of their finest uh, filmmakers. And of course, it's all um, anime. Um, there's a lot of the Western harmony with nature and renewables and chemicals are bad um, and nuclear is bad, but, 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 but he has so many, but it's so weirder than that. Like he loves fossil fuels. He loves his jet planes. Um, it doesn't have that kind of use sin, like we, like that Al Gore yesterday getting up and doing this kind of old Testament preacher thing yeah. and Greta Thunberg, Joan of Arc. I mean, these, it's like, you know, it's like straight out of central casting. Um, I don't think that's the kind that kind of stuff doesn't fly in Japan. Right. Uh, an old old test like it, the like their heroes, like the heads of state and whatever. They don't thunder like that. They, well, I like, think it's also because I, I was going to say, because there has to be uh, emotional regulation is, is a fundamental feature. Right. That's why, you, yes. you know, Westerners are having a hard time oftentimes reading because they they hold their cards, if you like, their emotional cards tied to their chest. So that bluster would not go through for exactly that reason, it seems to me. Right. Well, and honestly, if I'm being honest, um, I have a fair amount of bluster myself and I don't do well in Japan. I mean, I did actually get invited to a Blue Ribbon Commission on energy, but 
Um, I would get frustrated with the Japanese and be more emotional. So I think you're absolutely spot on with it. So it's almost an emotional regulate regulatory difference and cultural difference. It's a religious difference, you know, and then there's just sort of, and the money issue, I mean, I struggle with it. I mean, I certainly in apocalypse, never the conclusion, because I kind of go, everything you think about the environment is wrong. Why did everybody get it wrong? And I kind of go money, power, religion. And then what runs through each of those chapters is often the same people. So it's, it's, you know, what you also see at Davos is just this desire for Europe to rule. Hmm. I mean, it's Europeans, you know, the Africans and the Asians will kind of be there to be in the way that they want them to be globally. But I mean, it's a very, you know, um, it's a very European power, you know, I mean, like, it's almost like I was joking. I was like, it almost has a kind of like white power element to it. I mean, it is sort of airy and like, it's got this, like, you know, he won't give up power. He's this 82 year old and he's a really creepy guy in so many different ways, but you also see a kind of creepy relationship with Africa where they're going to, they all fly in on their jet planes. And then they spend a lot of time talking about how Africa should not use fossil fuels that Africa should not have factories. It should not use fertilizer. And that really, we Westerners ought to be eating insects in the same way that the Africans and the Asians eat insects. My wife is uh, Korean, American. Her parents are Korean immigrants. Um, I spent a bunch of time in Korea unrelated to her and had eaten their, uh, their, their insect dish as a kind of bar. It's like a kind of novelty for people like me. Um, I want to say is it it's not mealworm um it's no it's like a larvae it's like a pupa or something and it was gross it was i was just being honest like and i love korean food i love korean beef and the koreans love beef most koreans don't like eating insects and then my wife asked her father why they eat insects he said we were poor we were hungry so it's not this is not the so then but then but wef and like these groups they want to go sell you insects like it's some great improvement in human quality of life and i think it really i spent a lot of time on the insects thing because i think i haven't quite cracked it in the sense of what is going on there but i do feel like it's the global elite's way to kind of put you down but it's also it's a but they you know there's this famous video of nicole kidman eating bugs it's the grossest video you've ever seen the actress nicole kidman right and she's eating bugs now it's kind of like and she looks grossed out actually she's a good actress but i mean she doesn't look like she's enjoying it like not like when you would eat proper food or beef or something. And so part of me goes, yeah, I came back a little bit to the Nietzsche on that one too, which is sort of that that's a power asceticism. I'm going to sacrifice. Right. I have sacrificed. And you see the narcissism in it too. I have grandiosity. Um, so, you know, I am sacrificing to save the planet. Now give me all the power exactly. and the money. I'm and the money you- too. I'm glad that you said the word grandiosity because I had written an article about, you know, celeb. the article I think was called The Narcissism and Grandiosity of Celebrities. So you're exactly right that those two concepts, narcissism and grandiosity, go well together. Okay, I want to drill down about some of the, uh, you know, climate debates, but I want to set it up using a framework that I discuss in The Parasitic Mind. So if you forgive me, just grant me a few minutes to set it up and then I'll cede the sure. floor to you. So in chapter seven of the parasitic mind, I, 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 the chapter is titled how to seek truth. And what I argue is that the way that you adjudicate really, you know, through complicated, this, you know, issues, 
is that you have to build nomological networks of cumulative evidence. And what I mean by that, it's, it's a mouthful. And so let me give an, a specific example, because then what I'd like to see is if we could apply that framework to adjudicate some of the issues that we debate on climate, right? So let's suppose I want to prove to you, Michael, that uh, sex-specific toy preferences are innate. It's not a social construction. You know, little Johnny is not taught to play with the blue truck and little Linda with the pink yeah. doll because of sexist parents. There's I have a son and a daughter, so yes, I'm with you. So you get it. Okay, exactly. <laughs> so, so how would I go about to build a nomological network of cumulative evidence? And, and as I explained in the book, uh, a nomological network of cumulative evidence is not simply a, a, a beefy literature review. It's not a meta-analysis. It's actually much more epistemologically powerful than that. What I'm basically trying to do is collect as much distinct lines of evidence from across cultures, across time periods, across species, across disciplines, across methodologies, all of which hopefully will triangulate in this sort of orgiastic triangulation to prove that I'm right. So let's, let me give you, I won't build the entire network for the toy preferences, but if I give you a few examples, you'll get what I'm saying. So I can get you data from developmental psychology showing you that young children who are too young, too young to be socialized. So by definition, they couldn't have learned those preferences. They already exhibit those sex-specific toy preferences. Okay, so that's there's notch one. I can get you data from vervet monkeys, rhesus monkeys, and chimpanzees showing you that their infants within their species exhibit the same sex-specific toy preferences as human infants do. I can get you data from across the world from cultures that are bewilderingly different from Western cultures, and they exhibit the same sex-specific toy preferences. I can get you data yeah. from 2,500 years ago from ancient Greek uh, uh, mausoleums where children are depicted playing with the exact same types of toys as we are today. So bit by bit, if you like, if you forgive the, the violet imagery, I am putting the epistemological noose around your neck because there's no way for you to go. I, I, I'm drowning you in a tsunami, speaking of climate, in a tsunami of evidence. So right. would we be able, because look, I, I'm not at all adept or knowledgeable about the climate issue more than the sort of most basic level, right? But would I be able to be a lot more uh, you know, strengthened if we can build such a network for the key debate issues on climate change. Do, do you follow my question? Um, I think so, but maybe you're not quite done yet. Yeah. So, so what I'm saying is, for example, let's take a metric. I don't know. Uh, whatever some metric is that either proves that climate change has nefarious consequences or doesn't. So then the question would be, what would I need to build as a nomological network? Like, can I get you data from across time periods? Well, that certainly seems to be that's something that climate scientists do. Can I get you data from across cultures? Can I get you data from across different uh, disciplines, ecology and paleontology, whatever? So is there a way for us to be, because when you read the stuff, if I read Michael Schellenberger and I look at your stuff, I go, you know that? He's making a lot of sense to me. This sounds really good. Then I read something else that is completely contrary to what Michael is saying. And now I'm confused. I don't know because I haven't drilled deep enough into the literature to know, you know, who's saying the truth. What's where's the cumulative evidence truly lit, lying. So 
What I'm arguing is that if we take the methodology of these nomological networks, it might allow us to have a much clearer perspective regarding some of these contentious issues. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if Apocalypse Never does that yet. You'll have to read it and, and let me know. I mean, the response I think I get from people is that it does. In other words, in, in Apocalypse Never, um, you know, and I do it in the text too, like I go to the Congo, one of the poorest, most dysfunctional countries in the world. And so, because my basic view is that climate change is real. It's almost all of it's being caused by humans. It's having the following impacts, greater temperature extremes, more precipitation, and globally more heat waves. And that's basically all we can say at this point about those big impacts. They think hurricanes will become slightly more intense, but much less frequent. So 25% less frequent, 5% more intense. This is the basic science. Most of what I summarize in the book is just I mean, almost all the science is just drawn from the IPCC. So there's not actually any disagreement between me and my critics on what the science says. What they actually do is they say, by presenting the evidence that Michael presents, he's creating a false picture that climate change is not as bad as people, as we say it is. And so it's actually very similar to what we just saw with Facebook and White House on COVID vaccine, where Facebook reassured the White House that it was censoring accurate information about the COVID vaccine because it worried that the accurate information was going to lead people to not get the vaccine. Similarly, I was censored on Facebook for saying things that they acknowledged were factual and that their own views were opinion but that they worried that would have the impact of people not being hysterical about climate change. And of course, that is my goal. I don't think you should be hysterical about climate change. Um, I think it's real and there are some consequences, but I don't think it's anything. It doesn't, it doesn't even just, it doesn't even get anywhere close to an apocalyptic threat or an existential threat or anything that fundamentally threatens human societies. But Apocalypse never walks you through all of the peer-reviewed scientific data on hurricanes, forest fires, flooding. And basically, it's a picture where human development in every situation outweighs the impact of slightly warmer temperatures. What matters in terms of growing food is having fertilizer, tractors, irrigation. That matters much more than the, the, the average global temperature because we can grow food in very hot places and we can grow it in Canada. Um, so, you know, it's, 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 that's the basic picture. Um, the confusion with the public comes from a group of people who have a ton of money, a ton of power and are a new religion. So the fact that there's so much misinformation, um, I mean, in your case, if you read Apocalypse Never, I think you'd be like, yeah, this seems to, to properly provide an overview of the science. And then if you were to even spend more time and look at the debates between my, my critics, you would see that like no one's like Michael is making up peer reviewed journal articles. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're just objecting to the evidence that I'm highlighting, saying that it's actually creating the wrong picture. They want to create a more hysterical picture. Does that and make by, sense? Yeah, that makes sense. So by creating a more hysterical picture, then that allows the downstream, you know, public policy, you know, 
enact, you know, whatever you enact as a public policy, what they're going to propose is going to be radically different from what you're going to propose. Since you're saying that yeah. it's not nearly the existential threat that it is, we don't need to be spending a hundred trillion dollars. I mean, I'm making up that number, whatever the number is, a hundred yeah. trillion dollars over the next hundred years to, to change the temperature. Whereas they're saying, no, that's exactly what we have to do. So, so, so if I understood you correctly, you're both agreeing on the facts. You're not agreeing as to what should be the intervention to these facts. Yeah, it's it's even more complicated than that. I mean, if you were to go through all the disagreements, you would just, of course, you would see a ton going on. I mean, one of the things, so so here's two, two things. Here's part of the reason you write a book is you have to unpack all this, right? You're so much in Apocalypse Never, there's so much research, but basically... What, what, what is a natural disaster is not the same thing as an extreme weather event, okay? So what counts as a natural disaster is two things, deaths and costs from extreme weather event. If there are no deaths and there are no costs, it's not, it's not considered a natural disaster. Intriguingly, the number of natural disasters has gone down over the last 21 years. And like nobody, it's just a single data set out of Belgium. There's nobody who's like, that's data, that data is wrong because we all use the same data set. And so what they do is they go, Michael Schellenberger is really wrong when he says that disasters are going down. Look, we can see more extreme weather events. So you see what I just did? Like, it's totally dishonest. You just changed the, the subject of conversation. And yet that occurred repeatedly against me for like two years. And so to the extent to which there's contrary, people, will, people still don't understand what I'm saying. They're saying, well, Michael Schellenberger said that extreme weather went down. No, no I didn't say that. Right. Do you see what I mean? So there's yeah. that sort of stuff that's going on. That, this brings us back to how the conversation started, is bad faith. They know perfectly, the people that are doing it know perfectly well the difference between disasters and extreme weather. They know that I know perfectly well the difference. And they know that their audience doesn't know the difference between natural disasters and extreme weather. So they're engaging in deliberate misinformation. Now, their intentions are still good. They think they're saving the world from climate deniers and climate delayers like me and Bjorn Lomborg and Jordan Peterson. So, you know, there's um, they always have a story about how what they're doing is the right thing, but they're definitely and this is, I think, one of the things you get out with parasitic mind. And I wanted to make sure we had a chance to talk about is that this sort of utilitarian ethics of sort of making the every end justify the means, this kind of naked Machiavellianism um, is really corrosive on the society and that you, and that effect, what, this movement called effective altruism. I have a piece I've been working on called, well, in my head, I haven't written it yet, but um, called effective altruism is pathological altruism in the sense that there's something, um, I think there's something grandiose about effective altruism. Um, you know, as we know from history, when countries become rich and develop, it's because there was some internal process, often a war and a political or some political unity. They then have a mix of democratic governance and, and capitalist kind of enterprise, but it's a mix. Governments are involved in whatever, you know, but there's often markets. And they develop and they grow rich. Effective altruists have this idea that we're going to go and lift Africa out of poverty. I mean, even the expression is narcissistic. Yeah. We're going to lift them out. No, you want to do charitable work. And so you see someone like Sam Bankman Freed, who's under criminal indictment for having you know, taken potentially billions of dollars and misused billions of dollars of his 
cryptocurrency client funding. And it's all justified the entire time by, well, I'm going to give all my money away. I'm going to go to Davos. I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to do these things. No grounding in what you might call more ancient virtues, like telling the truth, like um, treating others as an end of themselves and not as a means to an end. Because when you do that, you sort of say, well, I'm going to go save the world, save Africa, um, lift people out of poverty, do effective altruism. Then any kind of scam I want to run is justified because I have this terrible, this this beautiful (laughs) goal. Yeah, well... that, that's beautiful and so i'll i'll link it thank you for for you know bringing up the parasitic mind because as as you correctly pointed out in the parasitic mind i draw the distinction between two ethical systems deontological ethics and absolute truth right so uh or absolute moral precept it is never okay to lie that would be a deontological statement if i say it is okay to lie in order to spare my spouse's feelings then that's a consequentialist ethic and of course in many cases we navigate through the world via, you know, wearing a consequentialist hat. But there are a few fundamental tenets that have to be, by definition, deontological. Otherwise, it's a breakdown of what an enlightened society is. So presumption of innocence is one, right? Uh, uh, you know, a- an absolutist ethos of freedom of speech is is another one. And so not not some of the viewers now are going to say, oh, here he goes again, obsessing over Sam Harris. I use Sam Harris only because uh, he is an exemplar of someone who has been parasitized by an orgiastic form of consequentialism. So he's someone who certainly has written about morality, certainly has written a book called Lying. And yet I'll give three examples of violations of the ontological ethics. Yes, I believe in freedom of speech, but not for Donald Trump, not for Orange Himmler. So in that case, it was okay to, cut him out of the public square because he's simply an existential threat. So that's first violation. Yes, I believe in presumption of innocence, but surely not for Brett Kavanaugh, because after all, this is not a criminal case. It's simply a job interview. And if someone said that 36 years ago, something may or may not have happened, I don't really have the details or any evidence, then we should err on the side of the accuser, because in this case, you know, presumption of innocence doesn't apply. Sure, I believe in journalistic ethics, and I believe that you should not lie. But when it came to Hunter Biden's laptop, it was perfectly reasonable and justifiable that they shut down that story, lie about that story, suppress that story, because otherwise Donald Trump would have won. So the reason why I use Sam Harris as an example is because he is someone who is in the public sphere. He's got a big platform who, and he purports to be this expert on morality, yet he succumbs to consequentialism in in situations where he shouldn't. What are your thoughts about this? And does any of that debate, deontological versus consequentialist, apply to uh, the climate issues? I'm guessing you're going to say yes, because any scam that I pull as a climate activist is okay because there's a greater goal, correct? Yeah, I mean, for sure. And of course, it goes way beyond climate at this point. I mean, so my second book is called San Francisco. And this is a book about um, basically why progress It's called Why Progressives Ruin Cities. Right. And I didn't really have a chance to think about, because um, I was all, when I was writing the book, I didn't have a chance to think about it about how it was related to Apocalypse Never. I mean, I knew there was a relationship and both are criticisms of progressives to some extent. Um, 
but I really got through writing that book. And then I spent the last year thinking about how the two things are connected. And then I think that the Sam Bankman Freed, this cryptocurrency was a very good case for me. I spent, I wrote two articles on it. You know what I'm talking about, right? The FTX. Yeah, of course. Um, that was a very important case for me because, well, I think a, a couple of reasons. First, it was obviously different than crime, drugs, homelessness, or energy and the environment or climate. It was a different, to- it was a totally fresh topic for me. Um, beginner mind is a real thing and you need it because you just get too close to your material. So it's a fresh new case. Plus, he himself was so philosophically aware and was part of the super philosophically aware movement where they debated ideas like utilitarianism is kind of, you know, what you would call it, I think, or, um, you know, and, um, and and what you're struck by when you see how he's being raised by his parents there's basically two big ideas. One is utilitarianism, which is basically the ends justify the means, and it grossly exaggerates the, uh, you know, the ability. Uh, I mean, it's 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 not humble in the sense of um, it, it eschews humility by saying, um, "Don't rely on these ancient virtues. Uh, we're going to run some math to figure out whether or not you should pull the lever and the trolley car should kill a bunch of people in one way or the other." Um, it's kind of, I think there's something pathological about it too. I'm not quite sure I know what it is, but it's, it's sufficient to say it's hubristic and it, it overemphasizes um, the, and you see him do it with his cryptocurrency exchange, right? So the whole thing is a manifestation. Of that. The other part of it was comes from his mother and she makes this case against free will. This is obviously, we're dealing with some really old philosophical debates at this point. We're dealing the the most the oldest the most important. I'll tell you where I end up landing with it, which is that you know there's a lot of rationality is obviously super important, and thinking about the consequences of behaviors is something we should obviously do. How could we not do it? It's part of what we do. There's a reason why the ancient virtues have lasted so long. There's a reason truth has inherent you know, free truth and freedom and these things have inherent value aside from their consequences. Um, and there's a problem there. And, and you know, and so, the, and so for me, that's part, you keep your virtues. <laughs> um, you still think about the consequences of your actions. You also have your virtues. But then there's the other issues. You're now you're introducing Sam Harris. Um Hume makes this famous is-ought distinction, which is the basis of modern science. There's things that are wrong with it, like scientists um, are subjective and scientists are often pursuing, scientists are biased. They're trying to prove their hypothesis, particularly the greatest ones. They're not this picture that somehow you know, what they think is good and what they think is true are somehow separated. That's obviously not what it looks like to be a scientist or to be a great author. You're actually trying to bring a truth into the world. It's much more of a creative act. That being said, I think that the Hume distinction is a really useful one that also has this continuing value. And when you get yourself convinced that you're going to use science to decide what's good, uh, you're on a dangerous path. <laughs> and I think it can lead to some of the, I haven't had a chance to engage with Sam, so I wouldn't want to make a criticism quite yet. But what I would want to ask him would be, um, you know, just how would he respond to the basic Hume 
view and critique, which says that humans are subjective animals and that's precisely and biased and that we allow our, our emotions to rule us. And that's precisely why Hume said you would want to keep a distinction between what is and what what ought to be. And and why would you, why do you, what do you, like, how do you respond to the Hume critique? Because I haven't seen him him do that. And it seems to me that it still stands. I I I, I have faced the, the is ought issue and also related to the naturalistic fallacy in my work in evolutionary psychology because many of the people who abhor evolutionary psychology do so because they conflate the is with the ought and the following way. So for example, if an evolutionary psychologist explains why child abuse happens or why rape happens or why marital infidelity happens, then the detractors of EP think that that the science, the, the psychologist, so the academic, is justifying those acts because yes. they simply can't understand that the fact that I explain why rape happens doesn't mean that I am for rape. And usually the the analogy that I give so that so people can understand that it's a, it's, a, it's completely wrong to succumb to the naturalistic fallacy is if you are an oncologist trying to explain cancer, it doesn't mean you are for pancreatic cancer. It doesn't mean you're justifying. And suddenly it, that clicks in their head. But there is something in, and I see it. I mean, not only do I see it in my in my writing in terms of how other academics have reacted to my work, but oftentimes when I lecture in front of students, one of the first sort of obstacles that they have to overcome but professor, aren't you trying to justify why men and women cheat in their marriages? No, I'm not. I'm explaining to you why it happens, right? And so, so yes, that 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 cognitive and philosophical obstacle happens many times. But I just want to say one other thing, uh, not to plug the parasitic mind, forgive me, but I think there is something common to your two books, and it's called the parasitic mind, because both of your books are demonstrating in different domains what happens to a brain that becomes parasitized by a particular set of beliefs. In one yeah. case, it manifests itself in the domain of you know climate, the climate realm. In the other case, it manifests itself in public policy related to you know uh, municipalities and so on. But both of these are a breakdown of thought, and and that's why I mean. But one yeah. other point, and then I'll cede the floor to you. What drives me to you know, lend my voice to the debate is because as I explained in chapter one of the parasitic mind, I'm driven by two life goals or two life ideals, truth and freedom. So that when I see bullshit being swung, I get personally injured. I'm offended. That's why even though I'm a very affable and warm guy, sometimes I can be a bit caustic and spicy on social media because you pissed me off with your bullshit. And therefore I get quote triggered. Is that what also drives you in terms of your interventions? Oh, okay, yeah. that, that's the key driver. Well, okay. you said truth and freedom, and I think um, I, and then I think maybe I get most upset by injustice. Right. In other words, it's one thing. I mean, there's something. There's you know, like I don't argue with Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I'm not like randomly out there seeking to debunk things. Like that's like mostly what we think is probably wrong. You know, like we have no, I mean, we just tell stories across time, you know? Um, and so my, so I, I, but, but, you know, when you're trying to deprive other people energy or you're making it harder on the Africans, um, 
you know, I, I am also a big believer in adversity, but I just kind of go, you know, they're the last people on earth to develop. It's actually extra difficult in a lot of ways for Africans. So when I see Europeans behaving in, in the ways that they are like bullies, it really, that really bothers me. So to some extent, my own desire to understand my opponent's mentality has been in service of, of a kind of justice, I would say. Um, it's not, um, probably not as much for truth. And then freedom is something I have an ambivalent relationship with in the sense that San Francisco is also a description of the, so it's mostly a description of the, when compassion becomes pathological and in that sort of Nietzschean tradition of a kind of typical critiques of over a pathological altruism, pathological empathy. It's also a critique of pathological libertarianism which is a kind of, or a big Lebowski-ism, right. you know, which is kind of like, hey man, you like to drink a glass of wine. Why can't he smoke fentanyl on your sidewalk? And it's like, well, because, because there are limits to freedom and it's called cities and it's called like physical environments. You can't just be free to do whatever you want everywhere. It's not going to work that way. Um, so I've become also very interested in just civilization. It's the first thing on my bio right now on my Twitter. It just says pro-civilization because there's so many questions around identity or left, right. You know, I mean, just identity is everything, right? Um, sexual race, you know, so so I was kind of like, people were kind of, well, what do you, you know, who are you and what do you want and where do you sit and all this stuff? And I'm like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be pro-civilization because without that, you don't have freedom and truth and justice you have rule of the strong over the weak and that's all it is and my fear is that that's the parasitical mind is you know it's coming from a reversion to a more primitive form of social organization i mean there is sometimes i kind of i was seeing i ran a piece at one point called you know socialism it's all feudalism like there's really like socialism and communism when they kind of got themselves organized, they just kind of created a new feudal system, like a, a similarly just an inefficient political political dominating system. And so you kind of part of me just goes, there's just it's just kind of type one, type two civilization. Type one is kind of what we have in the West, where there's this accommodation between this free market realm of life, and there's going to be a kind of societal governed part of life, and there would be some tension and conflict and but you're trying to kind of keep some of those things in balance and people are innocent until proven guilty and, and you have freedom of speech. It's pretty absolute. It's not totally absolute. You can't, you can't leave, you can't, you can't use your voice to get your neighbors to go murder all the Jews in your neighborhood. We've decided we're not going to allow that. That's a very specific Supreme court ruling in the U S um, but pretty darn absolute and that those things are made possible by police officers and the meritocracy and cheap energy. And so I, I've got really interested in, in if you want these values and virtues to be carried on, you have to have civilization and we're at risk of undermining it. Beautiful. Two last questions. I want to be very mindful of your time. Uh, question one, have you, so, you know, Paul Ehrlich and, you know, let's say Anthony Fausti, uh, Fauci, one of the things that I think they suffer from, well, not I think, they do, is epistemic humility, right? The idea that yeah. you, you sort of never revisit something, say, ah, yeah, okay, my bad, I think I was wrong. Have you had anyone through all of your extensive engagement writing of these best-selling books that 
held position A, and then even if they wrote you privately, but someone, some a, a well-known person say, you know what, Michael, you've changed my mind. And if you answer yes to that, that already would be a victory because one of the, the most difficult things to do in the natural world is to change anyone's mind of anything. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, and it's always, yes. So the, the short answer is lots of minds changed of people that had not been publicly committed to those positions. Good. So it's the public commitment part that really he I'm unusual. I mean, I did change my mind and my books are about me changing my mind. And it was very difficult. And the social and other consequences are extremely high for changing your mind. So there's a reason why it almost never happens. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it does what I what we the way the change occurs is that it changes the books and my work has sort of tries it sort of changes the conversation more broadly. So fewer people are indoctrinated and it becomes harder to express wrong ideas so openly. Right. Beautiful. Okay. Last question. What are there any exciting projects, whether it be the next book that's coming down the pipeline or, you know, another Institute that you're finding that you'd like to talk about and promote, take it away. Well, I'm, I just gave back uh, both of the advances on the two books I was under contract to write. So I've decided that I'm at, for now, I'm done being a book author. And I'm now, um, uh, most of my time is as a journalist for our Substack publication, which is called Public. And then I still have an environmental progress is my nonprofit, um, which does, which incubates ideas, leaders, and movements. And we just launched a new coalition to deal with the addiction and homelessness crisis. And we're still also supporting uh, the grassroots conservation movement, uh, fighting to pr pr protect landscapes and seascapes from industrial wind and solar. So those are the things I'm working on. And it's been it's been a super fun to just be full-time on Substack. And people can check us out at public.substack.com. Uh check us out what's the plural it's not just your substack who, who else is involved in that yeah so my friend Leighton woodhouse joined me on january 1st okay gotcha wonderful hey michael we'll say goodbye officially offline but thank you so much for coming on the show and yeah. hopefully i think you're in uh, in the bay area i'm supposed to be going to the commonwealth book club for my okay. next book in july so hopefully we can meet and hang out in the bay area in person awesome Cheers. Thank you so much, Michael. Stay on the Cheers. line.